From beanies to carry bags and from shoes to caps, browse our shop now at tntradio.live. This is the Sonia Poulton Show on today's News Talk TNT. TNT. It is indeed. And good morning, good evening, and good night to you all around our beautiful world. This is indeed the Sonia Poulton Show on today's News Talk TNT. How are you all doing? Good morning there in the chat, on X, on Instagram, in my email, wherever you can find me. Keep contacting me, as indeed did Tara. Hello, Tara. She wrote to me from Glasgow in Scotland, and she said, after just a month, your show has become a regular morning listen for me. I switch on as I'm getting ready for work. Brilliant guests, lots of info, and I love the chat you have with Gemma Cooper, another truth-telling journalist. Keep up the great work. We intend to. Thank you. Thank you very much. And uh, last December, of course, Julian Assange's two-day public hearing was announced for February 20th and 21st at the UK High Court. This is, of course, as we've been telling you, to determine whether Julian will have permission to appeal or whether he will be extradited to the United States. And TNT will be at the Royal Courts of Justice broadcasting and covering the entire two days if required. Then TNT will broadcast from various locations throughout London. And on Sunday, there is the London premiere of The Trust for Julian Assange. That will be at the Rio Cinema on 18th of February, as I say, Sunday at 1pm. The film will be followed by a panel discussion and Q&A with Tariq Ali, Christine Harafnason and hopefully Stella Assange. And uh, to find out more, go to any decent search engine and search for the trustful Julian Assange London premiere. And I mentioned that up front because yesterday, WikiLeaks member Christine Harafnason reminded the press pack in Geneva that Assange has been fighting for his freedom for 13 plus years. Harafnason denounced the ongoing persecution of Julian Assange, um, which obviously, as I say, is a week ahead of the High Court hearing into the extradition. Um, and uh, Harafnason also highlighted the revenge and political persecution by the United States against Assange, alleging that they had sought to execute him in 2017. Should he be detained in this country in poor health, Julian Assange will face conditions that will kill him, Harafnason said. So we've talked about the CIA visitor lawsuit to do with Julian Assange recently. It's taking place in Spain. And this is where the security firm who was supposed to be protecting Assange were allegedly spying on him and his guests for the CIA. Well, guess what the CIA have done? They've moved to invoke a state secrets privilege. This is an attempt to kill off that lawsuit, no doubt about it. In a new application, the CIA is hoping to invoke this clause. And it, the idea, of course, is to be able to block the disclosure of information that may indeed implicate them in spying on Assange. For those who aren't familiar the state secrets privilege is a common law evidentiary rule. It allows the government to withhold information from discovery when disclosure would be detrimental to national security. That old nugget again. So is national security, isn't it? You know, the thing is, this is just something to hide behind. That That is the reality. This man is persecuted. There's no doubt about it. He embarrassed the American government under Trump, and they've been after him ever since. And that is the reality of it. I'm very much looking forward to next week's High Court hearing. And let us pray that the judges see common sense. This is an innocent man, absolutely obscene. 
And I noted some other news, and I wonder whether news like this is designed to inflame already existing tensions. It's been revealed that the British Home Office pays to rent out 16,000 properties to asylum seekers, despite clear housing shortages for British people. Landlords have been offered a five years guaranteed full rental payment by Home Office contractors who will manage the properties as the government rushes to relocate asylum seekers from hotels. But officials have warned that this is likely to create ghettos because it's very specific areas where these properties are being acquired, such as Hull, Bradford and Teesside, which already have huge unemployment. There is already um, great poverty in these areas. So it is most concerning. And the problem, of course, is we don't have enough properties already for the people who are here. And as I say, is this designed to inflame intentions? The last figures we had are for uh, 20 2021, that showed that 1.21 million households were on local authority waiting lists in England. This was an increase of 2% from the previous year. So if we worked on that basis, likely to have increased again, almost certainly. And I really want to know what you think. I've always been pro-immigration, but I do wonder whether these sort of tactics, these sort of announcements are, you know, about just adding fuel to the fire. And none of us want that, right? We we want peace in this world. We certainly don't want riots. And it almost seems like the authorities do. Um, and on that note, this is the point when we bring in Gemma Cooper. Be right back. Going 360 on the headlines. It's really well-balanced conversation. Today's News Talk Radio, TNT. And yes, it is indeed TNT. And this is Gemma Cooper on Thursday. How are you doing, Gemma? Yes, very well. Thank you, Sonia. Interesting that you're talking about that uh, that, that story about the Home Office um, buying up all the, well, not buying, but taking the rental contracts uh, and to put uh, immigrants in because, of course, it's the cost. This is the, it's the cost, isn't it? It's shifting the problem out of the hotels where it was costing £150 a day per asylum seeker into private rental accommodation where the cost can be as low as £30 a day. So they're clearly aware. I mean, it's part of Rishi Sunak's pledge to bring people out of hotels where they've been costing the taxpayer £8 million a day, some uh, some sources have said, uh, and, and putting them into cheaper accommodation. In fact, I talked about this story yesterday with Dean Mackin uh, at the top of the, the, the UK start of, of breakfast broadcasting here, uh, and, and, you know, immigration is an, and mass cultural destabilization, if you like, is not a problem that is unique to the UK, not by a long way. And it's interesting that this story actually was leaked by somebody in the Home Office who said, yeah, it's cheaper, but it's not necessarily popular because of the very issue that you highlighted, which is ghettoization. Uh, and, and that really is a problem for integration. And of course, the other problem, which is young families and young workers can't get a foothold on the cheap rental market. Here in the UK because they're, they're being brought up so that they can shift the asylum crisis out of very expensive hotels into cheaper rental. But it doesn't leave any room for, for, for young British people who want to establish a foothold, move out of home, move somewhere to get a job. It, it, it doesn't solve any problems. It's shifting an existing one around in an election year. Uh, and their headlines will be, we're saving all this money, but it's not really solving any problems <clears throat> and it's creating a whole set of new ones. Yeah, and the amount of animosity that comes from it is just ginormous. I've never been part of that sort of movement of, oh, here comes the foreigners. No, never, ever, not ever. But I can absolutely see why people are upset, why people are unhappy. And you know what happens, Gemma? It's always the same thing, isn't it? We turn on each other rather than those pulling the strings. 
Well, funny you should say that because, of course, one of the headlines out today, and I won't repeat it here, I've just talked about it at the last hour with Dean once again, is that, you know, we've got record levels now of anti-Semitic violence, uh, you know, with global policies filtering down to behaviour on a street level. You know, both political parties have come out in force against this this morning. You know, the Home Secretary saying he will do everything he can to tackle the amount of attacks on Jewish people, which are becoming increasingly violent. Um, and, and it is we turn on each other because we've got no outlet for the frustrations that the global policymakers make. And that applies to immigration as much as it applies to what is happening in the Middle East. We're turning on each other because we can't turn on those pulling the strings, as you rightly say. Um, you know, there is an argument for, is this part of the kind of agenda? I don't know, we talk about agendas a lot. It's very hard to quantify and very hard to prove. But what we can see is that there are more people coming out against immigration now saying it's not working it's not working for british people it's not working for the taxpayer the cost of this is unsustainable and we're seeing we're seeing behavior on a street level some of the attacks against jewish people were children against children that's how far down it is filtering these tensions uh, and that was quite a shocking mm -hmm. thought and, and some of these attacks have been very violent but it's a result of what's happened since october the 7th which was nothing to do with people and, and all to do with policy and, and international you know tensions yeah, interesting you say that, you know, did you see all the people who were surrounding Tobias Elwood's house and then Rishi Sunak put out this message where he talked about, you know, democracy is built on free debate. But really what it's about is sort of protecting MPs from criticism. Don't get me wrong, I'm not suggesting it's a good thing for lots of people to show up outside a member of parliament's house, not at all. But they have to be there to be questioned, don't they, Gemma? And it's almost like they are being absolutely protected from any criticism, and which is not sustainable. No, and again, I think that's that behavior is another indication of the outlet of tension. You know, it filters down, and then you have you do you, you do something to release this tension that you feel about the powerlessness of what's happening globally, or in terms of government policy on your doorstep. Either one, uh, it creates a reaction in, in in individuals and in groups and in communities, and then you have to have an outlet for it. And of course, we see this more and more. We saw it with Ulez protesters outside Sadiq Khan's house because they're just so frustrated. This policy has been thrust upon them, ultra low emission zones, uh, which is a global thing. You know, the WHO are watching it with interest. They want to filter it out across to all mayors that are part of their, you know, little you know, scheme across the world. It's global policies that people don't want. And of course, what happens? Yeah, behavior will we'll, we'll follow accordingly. You, you know, we're human. We're not robots. Not yet anyway. <laughs> and then, as you say, as you were saying yesterday, again, it's that problem reaction solution, isn't it? And the next thing we know, you know, the MPs will, will be way beyond our reach. They won't be accountable at all. And uh, because the new rules will be brought in, new laws to stop us and uh, and our dissent will just go in the wind. It, I think it's we're, we're really heading in some very, very troubling times. And sometimes I do worry when I see these protests, such as outside Tobias Elwood's, because you have to wonder how many interlopers there are in there, how many people from MI5 and the government because we know that happens absolutely unquestionably. We do indeed, we do indeed. But uh, I think I'll just get on to one of the headlines of the day because this this is going to be happening imminently, uh, Sonia, and that's that figures are out just as we speak. You're just waiting for them to drop, uh, which will show whether or not the UK is officially in a recession. Uh, where a gross domestic product data is due to be released in just a few minutes' time. That's what measures the value of goods and services here in the UK and estimates the size and growth of the economy. Now, what it shows is that the UK economy did shrink by 0.1% between June July and September last year. That's what GDP data showed. We're waiting to see if the GDP data shows that it shrunk again between October and December. That will be two consecutive quarters 
of negative growth. If that's the case, we will officially be in a recession. Now, I would wager that a lot of people feel we're in a recession anyway. Uh, and what a lot of economic experts are saying this morning is even if we are in two consecutive periods of negative growth, it won't change the lived experience of the average. Well, what a lot of economic experts are saying this morning is even if we are in two consecutive periods of negative growth, it won't change the lived experience of the average, well, anyone uh, on the street here in the UK because of the cost of living crisis. Some are arguing that's manufactured, but certainly the price of goods in retail outlets and supermarkets, as we talked about yesterday, is going through the roof and wages aren't following suit. Um, there are various reasons people are saying why the economy might have shrunk to the point where we can officially class ourselves as in recession, which is what a lot of people were saying four years ago was going to happen. And interestingly, uh, people, uh, experts are saying the economy has struggled to gain momentum since the scamdemic, since COVID. Uh, and uh, because inflation eroded the value of earnings and squeezed spending. Well, that's what happened with furlough. If you print a load of money and people aren't working, surprise, surprise, we're now, the economy didn't recover. How many of us were saying that at the time? This is lockdown are bad for the economy. Furlough is bad for the economy. This will plunge us into a recession. We don't know if that's the case yet, but it's, it's a likelihood. Also, interestingly, a lot of economists are saying that the storms uh, that we, we were barraged with at the end of last year for several months, that also is a factor because it kept shoppers at home. Well, so much shopping is now done on the internet. I, that is a kind of a strange argument. They also talked about strike action, which reduced the number of days that uh, a lot of doctors and train drivers were working. Um, and uh, that is a, a, another contributory alleged uh, factor. Uh, even if we are in a recession, uh, they're saying it won't change anything because prices are continuing to rise. Uh, but we'll know in just a few minutes, probably as I just come off air, actually, with you, whether or not this data does say we're in a recession, as many as have predicted three, four years ago. Ugh. I mean, it's just a nightmare, isn't it? I was looking at government spending earlier in terms of uh, COVID-19 measures. Government don't even know their own figures, Gemma. I don't know if you're aware of that. But on the on the government website, the COVID-19 pandemic, as they call it, resulted in very high levels of public spending. They only have an estimate of between 310 billion and 410 billion. So that's a that's a, <laughs> a difference of 100 billion. Right. This is the equivalent, they say, to about uh, 4,600 to 6,100 per person in the UK. And that, of course, as we know, was used for the coronavirus job retention scheme, uh, often called the furlough scheme. Um, there was uh, extra money spent on public services such as the NHS with the ridiculous Nightingale hospitals as one example. So money has been thrown around, hasn't it? No doubt about it. This moment was almost inevitable, according to economists. Yeah, uh, uh, exactly. Uh, and according to a lot of, you know, relatively you know, inexperienced economists who right. just were knew, that knew something was afoot and that you kind of knew if you pay people not to work and you print loads of money to cover all of this, it's going to have a knock-on effect down the line, which is what might be revealed th this morning. I mean, many people, many economists are saying that, you know, the economy is just flatlining and it needs a boost, but no one's saying where that boost is going to come from. Um, so it will be interesting to see what these figures reveal and whether or not we, you know, we'll be talking about this a bit more um, at, at the end of the week tomorrow. Yes, indeed. This has been Thursday's edition with Gemma Cooper. I will be right back. TNT's Timothy Shea. The race is essentially now Vivek Ramaswamy and Nikki Haley. Ron disappoints us. We'll be pulling his hat from the ring next. And the issue, as always, is why is the Nikki taking so much of the left's money? Well, maybe this will give you a little insight. She 
credits Hillary Clinton with inspiring her to enter politics, having attended a women's leadership summit at which Hillary spoke. And Nikki said, and I quote, I then had to decide whether I was a Republican or Democrat. See, Nikki has no core beliefs other than doing whatever her globalist masters, paymasters, want her to say. The Reckoning with Timothy Shea on today's News Talk TNT. A better business tip from TNT Radio. One reason people tune in to TNT Radio is often because they're loyal to a specific show or personality. Our personalities have been a part of people's daily routine, and people continue to tune in. They trust TNT Radio and are highly engaged with the content. If you'd like more information about advertising on TNT Radio, simply fill out your details on our contact page and we'll be in touch. To find out more, go to tntradio.live. If you're talking about it, we're talking about it. Today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Now, TNT is an independent global news talk station. It does what others say they will do and they don't. TNT is, as you know, a live radio TV broadcaster that simply sets out to tell the truth 24 hours a day, seven days a week. No one in the world does what we do. Crisscrossing the globe, providing credible news and opinion all day and all night. In two and a half years, TNT has become a credible and exciting platform with brilliant hosts and brilliant staff. It's a critical time and we must continue to call out the misinformation and propaganda from mainstream media and their very powerful sponsors. We are now appealing to our many friends and supporters around the world to go to tntradio.live and make a small donation to TNT while we seek the right investors to continue our important and absolutely vital mission. And on that note, I'm going to be bringing in my next guest. Now, this is really interesting for me. This I, this feels very much like a, a circular moment. Um, we are hearing on a daily basis what a critical state our National Health Service is in. And yesterday we heard a similar refrain. We heard critical incident declared at Cambridge University Hospitals with 60 patients waiting for a bed in A&E. Now, I'm pretty certain that my guest, Dr. Bob Gill will be completely unsurprised by that headline. Welcome, Bob. Thank you for joining us today. Hi, Sonia. Thank you for inviting me. So I take it that that headline doesn't surprise you, Bob? Not at all. I'm afraid um, we're living through a manufactured crisis. Uh, the reason we're feeling it in the hospitals at the moment is we've had decades of bed cuts. We have a depleted workforce. Um, we have a government that is restricting funding for the provision of care. We have waiting lists, uh, you know, above seven and a half million. Um, and the staff are um, spinning plates all the time. And I'm afraid these long waits in A&E are leading to preventable harm and death. And, you know, something people like myself have been predicting for years. In fact, the uh, annual NHS crisis, bed crisis, has become normalised. And it's part of the sort of psychops the government have uh, organized, which is to desensitize us to the damage that they are doing. 
Absolutely. And the reason that I describe this as sort of circular for me is because I literally interviewed you 10 years ago when you were warning as loudly as you humanly could, they are privatizing the NHS. This is going to harm patients. And you were part of a documentary and I interviewed you as part of that. And you are an NHS doctor, you're an activist, you're a producer, director and co-writer of the great NHS heist, which is a fantastic film that you are responsible for. And uh, I, I believe you can now watch it free on YouTube. And you're also a political animal now, aren't you? Are you uh, in the Workers' Party? Yeah, I joined uh, quite recently, um, you know, hoping for something to emerge to be an actual opposition to what we have at the moment, which is a, a phony Punch and Judy show. We have two uh, neoliberal parties who are in the pockets of global corporations and the billionaire class who do not give a toss for 99% of the population, who are actively selling our national assets off to, to whoever their best friend is at that time. And part of that, part of that corporate capture is the destruction of our health service. To turn it into something resembling the American Medicare Medicaid system, which is publicly funded, but privately provided and allowed for profit extraction um, by denial of care to patients. Now, you're in no doubt whatsoever, Bob, that what we've actually witnessed and been part of is an absolute betrayal at the hands of politicians and media. Expand on that for me. Yeah, so in essence, we had a, we've had a quiet corporate coup. We have political parties who take donations from uh, financial interests. Recently, we had the endorsement of Keir Starmer by Larry Fink of the uh, venture capital fund uh, BlackRock, which controls seven trillion, I believe it is, dollars worth of wealth. So if you've got the opposition endorsed by these large um, capital interest financial institutions, they are going to do policies that satisfy their investors. And what they're interested in doing is liberating public assets for wealth extraction. So, you know, that is where we are. Um, what we have playing out in the media very largely in, re in relationship to the NHS is censorship by omission. There is no explanation of the overarching political objective or the cause that is leading to these crises that we keep hearing about. Um, their duty is to present what's happening to the NHS as some natural disaster. We just don't understand, you know, what's happening. And their solutions tend to be more of the same. You know, it's like it's like the uh, doctor who's quite good at spotting the diagnosis, but gives the medicine that will definitely kill the patient. That is the solution that the media presents on behalf of the politicians who work on behalf of the corporations. Right. Now, you've, you've you've done a new edit of your film, and that obviously includes, very interestingly, the legal changes that have been pushed through under the cover of the crisis of what we've been dealing with. Expand on that for us, Bob. Yeah, so, you know, the, uh, the pandemic provided the government cover to push through what, what I believe is the last legislative nail in the NHS coffin. That was in July 2022. And what they've in effect created is in England, uh, new 42 uh, public-private partnerships. These are uh, new legal entities which will control public funding for, a, for an area providing care for two to three million people. 
And the boards of these organizations are dominated by formerly private people working in the private sector, bankers, big four accountancy firms and management consultants on these boards who will have the liberty to decide what services are provided. So, for example, they might decide that in their area, they will no longer provide fertility treatment for anybody in that in that in their responsibility. Or they may decide on an individual level because now they have access to to patient records. They will use an algorithm to decide, well, you're we consider you too high risk for a particular surgery and deny you care on on that basis. Um, you know, part, part of what happened within the last year was United Health, which is America's biggest private insurer, bought up a company which controls half of the GP patient records. So they have your data. They have control of the budgets. They're in charge of these new public-private partnerships. And the model they're working to is denial of care to generate profit. This is deeply troubling. So we're dealing with something of a lottery here. Is it a postcode lottery now in terms of health? Well, I think there's a, sli there's a slide downwards across the board. There is denial of care across the board. We have denial of care through languishing on a waiting list. That's quite an effective way of denying care because people die while waiting. Um, so the lottery will be, you know, what service a particular integrated care system denies compared to another one, you know. So that that introduces some element of variety. You can you can weigh up who's slightly better off being offered one service compared to another. But generally speaking, the ethos of these organizations is to erect barriers to access, bureaucratic barriers, uh, a barrier through waiting a barrier through market banning of certain procedures, all endorsed by our political and media class. Let us go to the news headlines. We will be right back. This is uh, Dr. Bob Gill, who is telling us about the deliberate destruction of Britain's National Health Service. And action. The news. TNT Radio News. For TNT, this is James O'Neill. During the Kansas City Chiefs Super Bowl victory parade, a shooting occurred at Union Station, just moments after team members, including Travis Kelsey and Patrick Mahomes, had left the stage. Two gunmen were involved in the incident, resulting in at least one fatality and 15 injuries. The U.S. intelligence community, including the CIA, allegedly engaged foreign intelligence agencies of the Five Eyes Alliance to spy on Trump associates before the 2016 election. On air and on the app. I listen on the app. Stay up to date around the clock. I listen, therefore I know. Today's News Talk Radio, TNT. I'm delighted to be joined today by Dr. Bob Gill, who is giving us absolute brilliant clarity about what has been happening with the National Health Service in the UK. And we've been talking about the privatisation of it and the Americanization of it. Now, Bob, the Americanization of it, which you did touch on, that is about an insurance system, isn't it? Absolutely. So, you know, as the um, the universal element and the comprehensive nature of NHS provision is dismantled, you'll have more and more people getting denial of service. So what do they do? Now, they either go without treatment, they remortgage their house and pay for treatment, or they've taken out top-up insurance, top-up what has been removed from NHS provision. And the way you do that is to join an insurance scheme. 
And, you know, it's, it's quite handy that one of the chief architects of what's happened to the NHS for seven years was a man called Simon Stevens, who was employed after being the president for global expansion for United Health, an insurance company. You couldn't make it up. We've put, you know, the fox in charge of the hen coop. Deliberately so, has to be deliberately. Obviously, we know that without a shadow of a doubt. So this really has all been about privatisation and how that will ultimately impact the patient. And I was reading a paper in The Lancet from Benjamin Goodair and Aaron Reeves, and they were talking, which you alluded to, about how people are dying unnecessarily as a consequence. So things have definitely, unquestionably, even according to reports, got worse since 2013, which was when you were really worrying and warning about it. I mean, that must be devastating for you. It's like watching a slow car crash happening and how has that hit, impacted you as a, as somebody who works in the NHS you've put your head above the parapet that must be tricky yeah so you know in terms I'm a general practitioner in terms of how general practice is being funded if you grab every financial incentive that the government offers these are largely to destroy your own service now most of my colleagues are very short-sighted our union, the British Medical Association, doesn't explain the long-term implications. I, I have made a conscious decision. I'm not going to accept incentive payments that destroy the service that I provide. So that's ended up making my practice probably one of the lowest funded practices in the whole of South East London, but provides the best care. Now, how perverse is that? I provide continuity of care. I know my patients. They're very happy to stay with me. They're very reluctant to leave my list when they move out of the area. Whereas my colleagues aren't providing access to their patients and are being paid a lot more compared to me. So it's it's overrun with perverse incentives. Um, you know, when you mentioned the number of people waiting in A&E, one rather tragic statistic is for every 80 people waiting, there is one preventable death. And we're talking tens of thousands of people a month waiting more than 12 hours, languishing in a corridor. Um, what I'm shocked by is the continued lack of my colleagues to even recognize what's going on. Their heads are firmly in the sand. I'm shocked by the level of blatant betrayal by our health unions who've gone along with all of this. They are We are paying them to represent our interests. And my interest is to provide good care for my patients we are not capable of doing that anymore. We don't have the resources and we don't have the backup by the hospitals to do safe medicine. And I'm paying to be betrayed by my union, the British Medical Association. And, you know, the other shocking thing was to see the catastrophic handling of the pandemic by our government, hugely wasteful. They squandered 37 billion in a privatized response to the, to the pandemic. They threw money giving out dodgy loans to their friends. The PPE scandal has been widely commented upon and they achieved no clinical gain at the cost of a huge amount of money. Nobody's gone to prison. What surprises me is how many people are dying and nobody's going to prison. That's the most right. shocking thing. But, you know, having known this was coming down the line, psychologically unprotected because it's, it's not come as a complete shock. But what is shocking is the enormity of what they're getting away with. 
Yes, absolutely. It is, as you call it, a heist. That's exactly what's happening. So in, in this Lancet report, what it says is over 2 million NHS patients were treated by private companies. This was for 2022, just short of 10% of all treatments, which is up from around 3% in 2011. It goes on further to talk about treatable deaths, which is what you're, you're talking about, and saying since 2013, exactly the period that you have been raising the alarm, the annual number of treatable deaths in England has increased, breaking the trend of decreasing mortality for the previous 10 years. That's literally shocking. We're supposed to be progressing in society with all the things we know. We should be having less uh, preventable deaths, not more. And this has clearly increased. Absolutely. So the uh, infant mortality rate has gone up. The maternal mortality rate has gone up. Uh, life expectancy has gone down, and we're paying even more than we used to. So we're getting, we're being killed off and paying for the privilege through our nose. You know, either direct taxation, or top-up insurance, or out of pocket. W what I think, uh, you know, we need to get to, across to people is this trajectory is is not good for anybody, rich or poor. If you can afford health insurance, your premiums are going to go through the roof if you become ill. There was an article, I believe, just over a year ago in the Sunday Times about a, a barrister, a King's Counsel, who became ill. He had Bupa insurance. His premiums went up from £6,000 a year to £164,000 a year as his cancer progressed. So in effect, he was priced out of cover. Because let's not forget, insurance companies, they're not there for charitable reasons. If you become expensive... They want to drop you like a hot potato. And the way they do that is to adjust your annual premium to the extent that you can't afford it anymore. That's how insurance works. Actually shocking. And of course, at the heart of this is the issue of outsourcing, isn't it, to for-profit healthcare providers, which we've known about for a very long time. Ten years ago, I literally wrote a piece in the Daily Express about how many lords and MPs had interests in private healthcare companies and were allowed to vote on the health reforms. Absolute shocking, um, you know, um, a conflict of interest going on here. So what we do know, I'm just looking at some of the figures here, shocking, there really are 323 million of 4,999 million went for profit companies in the first three months of 2020 alone. That of course was the COVID-19 period. This is a huge volume of money. It, it, it's, this is criminal, Bob, isn't it? Yeah, we, we have a very elaborate scam. Uh, you know, you've got the profit uh, leaving the tax base. You have a another scam, which is the private finance initiative, which is bleeding hospital trust dry, servicing very toxic and expensive loans taken out to build new hospitals. Then you have the cost of running this this you know show, which is the bureaucracy and the uh, top management layer, which is sucking out around twenty percent just running this this charade. What we have is an elaborate, very complex, bureaucratic uh, smokescreen, which is allowing and enabling the siphoning of money that we pay in tax out of the NHS into the pockets of shareholders whilst people are dying. 
it is devastating what you have to say, but really vital and important. Bob, I want to personally thank you for sticking at this for so long because it was hard 10 years ago. It must be even harder now, especially because, I mean, you literally, everything that you told me then has come to pass. Let me read some comments. Lord Melbury says privatization of healthcare isn't about care, but about making huge wads of money. I think we'd all agree with that, wouldn't we? Everybody, this is Dr. Bob Gill, who is really speaking up for all of us. And I thank him greatly. Thanks for joining us today, Bob. Much appreciated. I will thank be you, back Sonia, shortly. Thank you. Give me a minute with TNT Radio's Steve Malsberg. Fresh off her court victory worth over $83 million over Donald Trump, of course, columnist E. Jean Carroll appeared on The Rachel Maddow Show and expressed her euphoria by making this offer to Maddow. You've talked about using some of Trump's money that you're about to get um, to help shore up women's rights. Do you know what that might be, what that might look like? Yes, or, Rachel. Yes. Tell me. I had such, such great ideas <laughs> for all the good I'm going to do with this money. First thing, Rachel, you and I are going to go shopping. We're going to get completely <laughs> new wardrobes, new shoes, motorcycle for Crowley, new fishing rod for Robbie. Rachel, what do you want? Penthouse? It's yours, Nothing. Rachel. Penthouse and uh, France? You want France? You want to go fishing nope. in France? No? Oh, all right, all right, okay. That's a joke. <laughs> I'm sorry, is it just me? Or does Carol's offer to Maddow seem to cheapen and delegitimize all she says she stands for? Thanks for giving me a minute. I'm Steve Malsberg. Catch my show Monday through Friday, 9 p.m. Eastern, right here on TNT. Our beautiful world is changing, withering, dying by the hands of those who don't value nature, even though we all depend on it for life itself. But there is hope. Together with caring friends, the Nature Conservancy can restore our lands and save our wildlife with big solutions only nature can provide. To learn more, visit nature.org today. Live from London, you're with Sonia Poulton on today's News Talk TNT. Dr. Bob Gill is quite rightly receiving much love in our live chat, which is absolutely wonderful. Uh, Mazzy and Peter and Drumstick and Shug and Angry Octopus and Shin and Skippy and Just a Bloke, everybody showing great appreciation for a great man. I always, I love whistleblowers. I think they're just like the salt of the earth, frankly. Now, interesting uh, story coming up, another social, social injustice story. And I do love covering them because they're absolutely vital, so important. A report released yesterday by Her Majesty's Chief Inspector of Prisons, Charlie Taylor, catalogued appalling Victorian conditions in British prisons, most notably HMP Bedford, which the inspector described as the worst I have ever seen. He revealed that prisoners had to deal with infestations of rats and cockroaches and where drainage problems were so severe, raw sewage covered cell floors. Now, here now to discuss this with me is David Shipley, a very interesting man. Welcome, David. Thank you for joining us on The Sonia Bolton Show. Hi, Sonia. How are you? 
Good to have you with us. I'm fine. Thank you, David. David, you were jailed in 2020 for fraud. You said, I did the crime. I've done my time. But you are now, you've literally turned it all around and you were part of the fight back to improve prison conditions for all involved, not just the prisoners, but actually to create a better society. And I've been looking into your work. It's great work, David. I take it you weren't surprised by that report yesterday. Not at all. In fact, most of the details were very familiar from my time in in Wandsworth. Uh, prisoners getting one or two hours a day out of cells, the filth, you know, rats, cockroaches, visits with family getting cancelled for no reason. Uh, the only detail which was unusual really was raw sewage on the floor uh, in some of the cells. But yeah, that that sort of those sorts of conditions you get at Bedford you find all across the country in our prisons. It, it's a dire state of affairs, isn't it? Some people like really punishing and like, don't allow prisoners anything. Don't let them have TVs or any relaxation time or anything. But surely the aim is, if we can, so far as we can with certain people, is to rehabilitate people. And I don't think you go about that by, you know, putting them in this punishing existence where life is barely livable. I completely agree. I think when we talk about prisoners, we've got to remember that 95% of the people who go to prison will be released one day. And we should all, whether we're left-wing or right-wing, we should want those people, when they're released, to have the best chance of being productive members of society who don't break the law and who can contribute in positive ways. And it's not just that our prison system right now is unpleasant, which it is it's horrible in lots of ways. It also doesn't really do anything to help people rehabilitate. It wouldn't be a softer prison system if we were had had prisoners going to education or training or work five days a week full time. Instead, we you know we lock men in their cells for twenty three hours a day, and they lie on their backs on their bunks and stare at the ceiling or stare at TV, and then we're surprised when they're released and they have no useful skills that they've built inside. Absolutely ridiculous. What an absolute waste of time and energy for everybody involved. Let's have a look at the prison population. The last figures show that there were 141 current prisons in the United Kingdom. This is spread over the legal systems of England and Wales, Scotland and Northern Ireland. And uh, there are roughly, very roughly, uh, 87,000 inmates, which is said to be one of the largest in the Western world. Why is that? Any idea, David? It's risen over the last few years for a few reasons. I think the 87,000 number is the prisoners in England and Wales, so the Scottish number is reported separately. Uh, right. We've had lengthening sentences, so uh, we're getting longer sentences for crimes because that's popular. We're also, we've been convicting a lot of people of historic sex offences, so that's driven the population up. There's another couple of big factors, though, that are increasing the prison population. One is that the court system is really struggling. So people can be waiting three or four years for a trial now. So you're getting longer and longer and waits on remand. So people might spend years waiting in prison for their trial. And when people are released on probation, we're now seeing more and more recalls. So this is people being sent back to prison during their, their period of probation. And that's mostly in three quarters of cases, not because they've committed a new offence, because they've, they've, they've made an administrative failure. They might have missed three calls or appointments with probation in the row, for example. And that might sound ridiculous, you know, how could someone miss three appointments? But actually, a lot of people who've recently left prison have quite chaotic lives. They might be dealing with issues around housing, family breakdown, you know, work. And to send them back to prison simply because they've missed a number of appointments is disrupts their life again, and it 
swells the prison population further. So all those factors combined mean we're just getting this ballooning prison population. Yeah, and we also seem to be imprisoning the wrong people for the wrong crimes, David. It's my experience as a journalist that, for example, when people download child abuse images, they are often not given custodial sentences. And the reason being is that the magistrates don't consider them paedophiles and so don't consider them unsafe. Now, I believe that people like that should absolutely be imprisoned, whereas people who have failed to pay their TV license, which is you know a considerable amount of people, there's, there's a statistic for it, have been imprisoned. That seems ridiculous to me. People stealing bottled water have been imprisoned. That's ridiculous to me, David, when we're allowing people who download child abuse images to walk free. Is there some sort of uh, issue that you've discovered as you've been working? Because you've been working with prisons on this. So is there a, a sort of hierarchy of offences that have taken place and somewhere you've gone, these people shouldn't be inside at all? Yeah, I mean, I think I think you know most people in prison were there because we, we we'd committed a crime, and I, I think I certainly think my crime was was serious enough to to, to warrant imprisonment. Um, what I think often affects how people are treated is class, and we, it's funny we, we I think we talk about you know race and gender and all this sort of stuff, but we don't really talk about class as as much as we should. And actually, if you're a if you're a you know, a poorer person, maybe from a sort of lower educational background, lower socioeconomic background, you are often treated much, much worse by the whole justice system. And something I found even in prison was as a, a kind of white Englishman with my accent, I was treated differently and better than many of my other fellow prisoners. Uh, and I think there's a there's a real classism embedded through the system. That's why, you know, the, the working class uh, single mum who hasn't paid a TV licence gets hit like a tonne of bricks, but maybe the, the middle class IT professional man who is found with child abuse imagery is is treated more leniently. And I think that's often what's driving a lot of these sentencing decisions is, is and that's sort of the overall treatment is, is class. That is such a vital point. I, I absolutely agree with you. Couldn't agree with you more, frankly. You've been working as a consultant for HM Inspectorate of Prisons and Probation. What have you been doing there? Uh, well, so, so that this was a in 2022. I I worked on a, a project where HM Inspectorate of Prisons were look, and probation were looking for people with lived experience of the prison and justice system to uh, examine how uh, the uh, what's called offender management in custody was functioning in prisons and outside. And this is a model for how uh, prisoners and, and ex-prisoners are supposed to be treated and rehabilitated. Uh, and we found it was it was simply not functioning. We published a report on that. And, you know, there was a, an official HM inspector report. Uh, and that was a really interesting experience to, to get to go into other prisons other than ones that I was a, a prisoner at. And, and sadly see in many cases that the same issues crop up again and again and again. Well, I mean, you described it. You said that your time in prison taught you that the system is broken, that it traumatizes and harms people, and it seems almost designed to maximize reoffending. That's a very serious statement. Yeah, I think it's true, though. Uh, so we've talked about how the, the prisons are gross, they're disgusting, they're unhygienic, they're unsafe, they're violent, they're drug riddled. And we've talked about the fact there's no active rehabilitation, but also. The prison system in, in England does, I think, make people more likely to reoffend in a number of ways. It it actively teaches that rules should be broken, and it teaches that antisocial behaviour is rewarded. So, you will often encounter situations where a prisoner is behaving destructively, you know, damaging their cell, you know, 
kicking off about something and staff will placate them they will find something to give them to to quiet them down almost as if they're a uh you know a badly behaving toddler and they're being placated by by parents doing what else to do by giving them sweets and that often that happens because they are there are very very junior staff in, on our prison wings there's not very many of them they feel overwhelmed and they just want the situation to stop similarly the prison system is full of rules but those rules aren't consistently enforced uh, and a classic example i always give is you know in most prisons in england vaping is banned on the landings you're allowed to vape in your cells but you can't vape in the public spaces in reality in most prisons in england prisoners and staff vape everywhere and at wandsworth i would occasionally see a uh you know a new officer arriving fresh from training who would try to tell a prisoner not to vape on the landings and then be confused when they were laughed at by other prisoners and sometimes even by their mm -hmm. colleagues and that's just one example you have this happens again and again and again and these this culture of where rules don't really matter and where bad behavior is rewarded over time must teach people that they shouldn't pay attention to the rules and, and that they should behave antisocially to get what they want and that those are the opposite lessons that a prison system should teach and that just creates nothing but cognitive dissonance doesn't it it's just absolutely ridiculous so obviously most of the people it's a very general statement but but surely most of the people who are in prison to have some sort of um psychological or emotional issue that should be dealt with in your experience how are we dealing with people's psychology and emotions in prison almost not at all uh oh. if you are there for a very serious crime yeah you 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 know if you've committed a murder uh, you will get therapeutic intervention. And that does seem to be pretty good, but it's for a very small uh, portion of the population. The vast majority of prisoners, many of whom have ADHD, uh, autism spectrum disorders, many of whom have adverse childhood experiences coming out of their ears, there's there's just no no support, no therapy, very little help. That There are courses on you know trying to drink less and money or manage your money better but no no serious effort to intervene therapeutically with the vast majority of prisoners it's it's just it's horrendous really listening to what you're saying because what hope for these people when they come out so one of the things that you do is you mentor don't you you mentor current and former prisoners how do you go about that yeah i i, I just sort of I, it's, it's some of it's people who i i knew when i was inside some of it's people who've come to me since but one example is a is a brilliant guy um, who I met in Wandsworth. He's now been released. He started a, a degree inside. He did the first two years of his degree. Uh, he got a job while he was at an open prison, so he'd go out every day to work while doing his degree, working so hard. Uh, he, he was released just under a year ago. Now he's finishing off his degree and he's working full time. And sort of through that process, when he's you know, been studying and wanted support kind of if you're finding an essay hard I've, I've chatted to him and you know tried to help him improve his work and that sort of thing I do I, I very much believe that you know education and and career opportunities can transform lives for for, for people in prison and I I you know I think for me I spent the first half of my life I think I kind of wasted it in many ways I'm very determined to use the second half of my life in a more positive way and hopefully to encourage other other people who've made bad choices that have ended up in ended up with them in prison to you know to, to find a path out as well it's very difficult i mean i i really applaud the way that you've turned it all around obviously and uh 
I mean, fraud is in a different category to me than a sort of class A, you know, um, crime, for example, completely different. And I don't know the actual details of your um, of your um, your conviction. But how has that impacted your life? Because, you know, you obviously you're clearly an intelligent man. You knowingly did what you did and then you were caught and then you had to pay the price for it. How has that changed you as a person? Yeah, I mean, I think I, I had far less excuse for my offence than many people I met in prison. I had all the opportunities in life. You know, I didn't didn't struggle in school, didn't have any of these issues. So I, I knowingly and consciously did something really stupid and dishonest. And I had to spend a long time grappling with myself, uh, both while I was awaiting sentencing and in prison, trying to figure out you know, why why had I behaved in that way? Why had I made that appalling choice? And how could I be certain I wouldn't make those kind of bad moral choices in the future? Um, and I wouldn't recommend prison for personal growth. Uh, but I think there is something about all that quiet time alone with your thoughts where you, in the end, you have to face yourself and you have to really, you know, decide who you are and who you want to be. Um, and I think that's that that for me was was sort of part of my experience in prison was to was to really kind of reflect on on who I who I want to be for the rest of my life. And I was de determined to be better and different. I mean, maybe, you know, I I look at things in the round, you know, life is an interesting journey, isn't it? Maybe in part you you went through your experience in order to be able to do what you're doing now. Who knows? I mean, that's the thing. Who knows? You're able to highlight really important issues. You've been highlighting, for, for example, safeguarding issues that hit these prisoners. But what is a way forward for us, David? Well, how can we improve this so that we can actually create more productive individuals who come out of prison? I mean, I think it starts with making prisons safe. You know, you can't do any of the good work around education and training and therapy if people are terrified and living in sewage. So our prisons need to be clean. They need to be physically safe. We need to get on top of violence. Rules need to be enforced so that, you know, like drugs aren't flying around everywhere. Violence isn't happening against staff and prisoners. That's step one. Then we need to treat every prisoner as an individual human being. Everyone who arrives in prison, we know how long they're going to be there. And each person should get a really well thought out, bespoke plan, which combines you know, the right mix of therapy, training, work, education, such that when they're released, they're in the best possible position to go and make something positive the rest of their life. Now, that, you know, that would mean spending more money, but we've got to remember the reoffending in this country costs about 20 billion pounds every year and does huge damage to our social fabric it, it rips families apart the parental imprisonment really harms the children of prisoners and that that intergenerational trauma gets passed down so for me this isn't even a question of you know are you a someone who who, who sort of cares about the rights of prisoners i think if we want a functioning society we should have a prison system which does all those things so it, so it actually you know makes the whole of society better for all of us. I completely agree with you. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. I think the more light that we shed on this situation, the better. As I started off by saying, many people are just like, punish them, they've done wrong. But no, that we all have to live in this world together. Let's try and make it better for everybody. Many of us don't know the start that some people had. And, uh, and I think we just need to introduce a bit more compassion and understanding, which I believe is what you're doing, everybody. This has been David Shipley. He is uh, working very hard to reform our prison system. And more power to your elbow, David. Thank you so much for joining us this morning on today's News Talk TNT. And uh, that 
brings us really pretty much to the end of Thursday's show. I'm just going to read some comments that have come in. In uh, Drumstick says, in Denmark, they're struggling to find people to work as prison wardens here in Denmark. It's not a popular gig, and who can blame them for that? Um, an angry octopus says, this shows the priorities of the states on your revenue collection is very important. Protection of the taxpayers is not important. Now, I'm not sure whether that is in reference to the NHS or the prisons. It could be both, couldn't it? Look, on that note, I just want to say thank you to everybody for joining me today as ever thank you to my wonderful guests thank you for the team who work extraordinarily hard i appreciate you all i will see you tomorrow do not move that dial as they used to say about 30 years ago because tnt is going to fill up your day take excellent care see you tomorrow <laughs>